are you feeling today? Are you feeling alive and energetic or lethargic and weak? Listen to your heart. Welcome to the Healing Whisper, a return to peace. Your host for the hour is Dr. Marianne Chase. When we fail to understand and work on the root cause of our stress and illness, we seem to be in a never-ending spiral of poor health and low energy. It's time to re-harness that potential in order to live a better life. Now, here's Dr. Marianne. Hello and welcome to the show. This is Dr. Marianne Chase, and I am so glad that you can join me today. Today, I'm going to have a very special guest, Dr. Arthur P. Sierra McCauley, and I'm just really excited about what he's going to have to tell us. And uh, before we get into that, though, I would like to tell everybody that you can connect with me on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, YouTube, as well as my website, thehealingwhisper.com. And I'd also like to remind everybody that you can head on over to voiceamerica.tv and catch a few of the videos that I've got up there. They are videos about gardening, and the show is called The Healing Whisper, Marianne's Garden. And it is also a show about gardening mindfully. So head on over there and enjoy some of those videos that I've got up there. And also that this show is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not intended to treat, diagnose, heal, or cure anything. Everything contained in this show is strictly the opinion of myself, Dr. Marianne Chase, and my guest, Dr. Arthur P. Sierra McCauley. And please, always check with a licensed health care provider about any concerns that you may have. So Dr. Sierra McCauley is a very busy practitioner, and, and uh, so he's, he's coming here to join me in a few minutes. But while we're waiting for him to show up, today we are going to be talking about his latest book. It's called The Stress Solution, and uh, the subtitle is Using Empathy in Cognitive Behavioral Therapy to reduce anxiety and develop resilience. And stress solution, it's what I talk about all the time here on this show. Excuse me. And Dr. Arthur has been talking about this sort of thing for a very long time. He is, just to tell you a little bit about him, he is a member of the Psychological Association and the Massachusetts Psychological Association. He's also been the chief medical officer of soundminds.org, and that's spelled S-O-U-N-D. M-I-N-D-Z dot org. And that is a website for psychologists. And he's also in private practice, which is really great because he not only talks about it, he practices 
practices it. Dr. Ciara McCauley has been on the faculty of the Harvard Medical School for several years. He's a lecturer for the American Cancer Society, chief psychologist at Metro West Medical Center, and director of the Metro West Counseling Center, and the Alternative Medicine Division of Metro West Wellness Center in Framingham, Massachusetts. He has a long list of credentials, and he first authored a book called The Power of Empathy, A Practical Guide to Creating Intimacy, Self-Understanding, and Lasting Love. He did that in 2000, and it's published in seven languages. A couple of the other books that he has published is a whole a treatment of abuse and addiction a holistic approach he's also co-author of beyond the influence understanding and defeating alcoholism and so with that as a partial list of the books he has written he has been able to join us now so dr arthur welcome to the show dr arthur welcome to the show Yo, thank you very much marianne good morning Good morning. I'm. I know you had to do a run to your office to get on the show, <laughs> yes, and I so I, I'm very grateful for that. And um, I was just going down a list of some of the books that you have written, and the latest one, of course, being the Stress Solution. So let's just get right into it. What is empathy? Well, empathy is the capacity, Marianne, to understand and respond to the unique experiences of another. It is part of our genetic endowment, and it it grows if we're around people that teach us empathy. It's sort of like a muscle. If it's if it's used and we're encouraged to use empathy to read beyond the surface and into the heart and soul of other people, it develops. If we're not taught to do that, it atrophies like an unused muscle. And empathy is very much... Uh, different than sympathy. It's often confused with sympathy. Sympathy rushes in to console, but empathy takes its time to understand the facts. It's more objective-oriented, and it slows down a process to use the cerebral part of the brain, not the emotional part of the brain. It teaches us not to react quickly, not to make judgments quickly, um, but it, it really teaches us to slow down, and when we do slow down, the most interesting thing is now that when we learn how to give and receive empathy when it's a two-way process, we produce the hormone oxytocin, which is the hormone that women produce when they're pregnant. And oxytocin is a near-miracle neurotransmitter that I'm sure you know, and it's the opposite of cortisol, the stress hormone. Oxytocin reduces anxiety and it reduces cortisol levels. It helps us live longer. It aids in recovery from illness and injury. It promotes a sense of common well-being. It increases generosity. It protects against heart disease, modulates inflammation. Importantly, it reduces cravings for addictive substances. It creates bonding and and very importantly, creates a trust, a sense of trust in others because it decreases fear, allows us to feel vulnerable with our insecurities and our imperfections. and, And essentially, it opens us up for love and connection to others. So the giving and receiving of empathy is incredibly important to reduce stress and, and to, it actually produces brain chemistry that is the opposite of what stress produces. 
So help me to understand this. Now, when we are empathetic with another individual, let's just say this other person um, it has alcohol abuse or any abuse uh, or addiction problem. Mm-hmm. Now, not being addicted to alcohol myself, I've always thought of empathy as being able to feel that person's pain. Is that not the case? Yes, it is the case, um, Mary. And, you know, we're, we're sort of feeling our way into the other person's experience, but their unique experience. Empathy fo- focuses on the uniqueness of the experience. For instance, the old adage was alcoholics are lazy. Well, now we know it's a genetic disease, and it's not, not caused by laziness. It, it's often inherited and passed on in families. It's often passed on as a way of coping, and it's a very complicated illness. So if we look at it on the surface, we could say, oh, that woman or man, they're lazy. They don't really care about life or their children or their, their spouses. That's not necessarily true. When you're addicted to a substance, it makes you react and perceive very, very differently. So empathy is always about looking beyond the surface. You know, the the empathic connection really slows us down to a manageable degree so that thought and cognition can perceive accurately. And that's why it's so important because most of stress is, is caused by misperception. And that's where cognitive distortions come in. And when we, we all get conditioned early in life to misperceive or have biases in certain ways about ourselves or other people, empathy calms the emotional brain so we can perceive accurately and thoughtfully and being able to perceive accurately is crucial to reducing stress, that old bias thinking that's based on early conditioning that distorts reality and causes unnecessary tension. And when we learn more about neurochemistry, you know, how to produce our own natural neurochemicals that create calm, focused energy, we can, we can be the best and reach more of our potential. Well, and, and so this brings up the question for me. So we have developed for whatever reason, a, a negative belief about ourselves. Let's just say that uh, for whatever reason, we develop this belief that I am unlovable. Now, how could I develop empathy for myself to realize that I am unlovable is not a true belief? Well, that's a, that's a very inc- important question, Marianne. You know, I, I think that what I try to teach people, and I focus on this a great deal in the book, is that early in life we create a novel, a fictitious story about ourselves that we write based on what we think is being reflected back to us from those around us, as if we're looking at ourselves in a mirror. But if the mirrors you're looking into are cracked or inaccurate, you get a distorted view of yourself as, as if you're looking in a circus mirror. So as a result, you create an inaccurate story about yourself, and this story sets the stage for an irrational belief system. And we can't change that story alone. We're all too subjective. We need a group of people in our lives that will give us honest feedback so that we can obtain an accurate view of who we are today, a more objective account than the one we came to believe about earlier in life. I know you know from your work, I mean, people come into adulthood thinking they're not intelligent, they're not attractive, they're not athletic, many, many things that are really based on fiction. And our job as adults, and this is where empathy comes in a great deal, is to slow down enough when we give and receive empathy with others, we start to get a better idea of who we are. We get a, more, a better idea authentically who we are. 
we we tend to reach our our potential because we're we're uncovering some of the old ideas that have really brought us down. You know, the trusting foundation that empathy creates changes our brain chemistry. It calms our soul and it puts us in a position to listen. And then we can op- open up and take in what we need in order to rewrite that old story and those old irrational beliefs about ourselves. We correct the distorted thinking. And only then can we become who we're destined to be. So you were saying, though, that we need a group of people around us to help us get to that place of of healing. And so <laughs> what uh, the question that I have is, Sometimes people are just alone. Does your your book help them find this and find people? Well, yes. The, the book, Marianne, is very much focused as, as a workbook because at the end of every chapter, I ask you to uh, uh, I ask you what who you identified with in the stories that I tell because I tell many stories about my own clients and how they uncovered their true self and and I, as I try to teach in the book. You know, many people think that self-help or working on yourself is about correcting what's wrong with you. And I, and I always say it's really more about uncovering what's always been right about you. And in the book, I ask at the end of each chapter to journal, to, to comment on the cognitive distortions that some of the people in these stories use, like generalization or black and white thinking or catastrophizing, mind reading, magnifying, the way we distort reality and distort our views of ourselves. And then I ask you, I, I provide exercises that allow you to work on that. And then at the end of each chapter, there's a take action phase where I ask you to take action and share some of your learning with someone close to you so that you can obtain feedback about what you are learning and how they see you. So I encourage people to, to engage in, in an interpersonal process. But the, work, the, work, the book itself is, is more of a workbook, as I said. And, you know, there's a, there's a questionnaire on stress. There's a questionnaire on empathy. There's a questionnaire on performance addiction. There's one on irrational beliefs so that you can understand where your, your irrational beliefs about yourself and others are. And I ask people to take these quizzes at the beginning and then compare the results at the end so you can see your progress. All right. That, well, that's, that's really encouraging that, that your book will lead people in that direction. The other part of the subtitle in your book is Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. Can you explain what that is? Well, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, Marianne, just basically focuses on the distortions we have in perception. And as I said earlier, how we perceive determines a great deal of our level of stress because most stress is caused by misperception. You know, if we always think people think we're, we're not attractive or we're not intelligent or whatever it is that we're sensitive about, we write a movie about ourselves and how we think we're being perceived without even dis- checking out to see if those opinions are actually accurate. So cognitive behavioral therapy focuses on the kinds of distortions that we typically use to perceive others or to perceive ourselves, like the ones I mentioned earlier, like generalizing. In other words, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, this person looks like your ex-husband, so you automatically assume they're going to act in a similar way. Or uh, black and white thinking, which is that you, you make decisions quickly. It's either one way or another, bad or good, but you have very difficulty seeing the gray in situations. And of course, in the emotional world, there's many gray spots. You know, there's many times where we're uncertain and it doesn't make sense to conclude. And, and 
come to an answer when we really don't have the facts, catastrophizing, mind-reading, magnifying. And I have a whole glossary in the beginning of the book of all these cognitive distortions that we typically use. And I'm, I'm trying to encourage people as they go through the book to identify the ones they use so they can unlearn them so that you can perceive yourself and others more accurately. So that's basically what cognitive behavioral therapy does. It focuses on how we misperceive and how we use cognitive distortions to misperceive ourselves and others. Okay. And so that that makes a lot of sense that uh, it's like we're behaving in a way that we believe we should behave rather than how the truth or the facts really should be how we behave. Well, it's almost time for the break. And what I would like to talk about when we come back from the break is about prejudice. Earlier, you just mentioned something about how we see other people, which really brings up how we as humans prejudice ourselves against other people. Like you said, that man looks like my ex-husband, so he must be like my ex-husband. So folks, don't go away. We will be right back. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Are you feeling stuck? Sometimes we just need a little help from a friend. Go beyond ordinary healing and experience the extraordinary healing journey possible with custom Healing Code Coaching with Dr. Marianne Chase. Visit TheHealingWhisper.com. Dr. Chase's coaching sessions can be conducted via Skype or by telephone. If you have half an hour to devote to getting yourself out of that rut, Dr. Mary Ann is ready to be that friend. Visit TheHealingWhisper.com and click Coaching. Tune in every Tuesday for C. diff, spores, and more with hosts Nancy Kerala and Dr. Chandrabali Ghosh. Our program is to provide information about C. diff, healthcare-associated infections, and more. Nancy is a C. diff survivor, healthcare professional, and the founder and executive director of the C. diff Foundation. And Dr. Ghosh is the chairperson of research and development for the C. diff Foundation. Together with their guests, we'll explore infection prevention, treatments, environmental safety, and more. Listen every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Health & Wellness. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to The Healing Whisper, a return to peace. If you would like to comment or have a question about our show today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. If you'd rather send an email, our email address is thehealingwhisper at mindspring.com. Now back to the show. Welcome back to the show. This is Dr. Marianne Chase, and my guest today is Dr. Arthur P. Sierra McCauley. And he is the author of the book, The Stress Solution, Using Empathy and Cognitive Behavioral Therapy to Reduce Anxiety and Develop Resilience. And if you're just joining us, just before the break, we were talking about 
the definition of empathy as well as <clears throat> the what is cognitive behavioral therapy. And Dr. Arthur mentioned about how we see other people. If somebody looks like an ex-husband, for example, and you see some that that person, you tend to then put on the belief that because they look like him, they must be like him. So in short, that's just prejudice. So how is prejudice it causes stress. Well, Marianne, you know, I'm glad you asked this question because prejudice rates in our country have increased, particularly in the last year. And what, what I think we all need to realize is that whenever we encounter someone who we have an inherent prejudice against, whether it's conscious or unconscious, we begin to experience a degree of stress. And when we're stressed, we release the stress hormone cortisol which limits our capacity for empathy. It really narrows our way of thinking. And it also causes repetitive negative thinking. And if you have prejudice against several types of people, it's likely that your cortisol levels will be consistently high. And what does cortisol do when they're in your body on an ongoing basis? It causes negative thinking, causes weight gain, inflammation, hair loss, breaks down muscle tissue, causes flabbiness, depression, anxiety, and it kills neurons in the memory center of the brain. And it also, a little known fact, it also throws off blood sugar levels when you have too much cortisol in your body. It enlarges fat cells and it causes weight gain. And a study even in, uh, in, in Switzerland, in Australia really, I'm sorry, recently found that chronic stress increases activity in the lymphatic system, allowing cancer to spread six times faster than it normally would. So prejudice causes stress. Stress causes the release of cortisol, and cortisol causes all these negative aspects that I just outlined. So when we don't feel safe with people, when we have these inherent prejudices, and, and you know, sometimes people don't even realize they have them. I mean, in the book, I was so glad that my publisher allowed me to write a chapter on prejudice, because I actually have, I think, 10 or 12 statements by people that, that made in my office, you know, because over time, people feel very relaxed with me and, and trust me, and they tell me what they really think. And it's amazing what, you know, very good, decent people, the prejudices they grow up with that they don't even realize are not accurate. One of my clients who's a CEO, educated um, and, and good father, good husband, uh, decent human being, there was a dog barking outside my office, and uh, we were talking about athletics, something he mentioned about going to an athletic event. And he said, oh, you know, dogs don't like black people. And I said, dogs don't like black people? He said, oh, yeah, because, you know, it's something about the smell. And I said, well, how did you learn that? And he said, well, on the corner of our street when I was growing up, there was a black family. And my mother always said, don't bring the dogs down because we had two dogs. Don't bring the dogs down to that section. Dogs don't like black people. So we never did. And I said, again, slowing down to try to have an empathic interaction have you ever brought a dog or have, have you ever been with a dog in the presence of an Afri African-American person? And he says, no. I said, well, how do you know that's a fact? He said, well, we grew up, we all knew that. I said, you knew it because you were conditioned to believe it, but you never had the experience. Is that correct? He said, well, now you're making me sound silly. I said, I'm not trying to make you sound silly, but our objective is to learn the truth 
and to unlearn some of the biases that we have that we grew up with that may not be oriented in fact. I said, I have an uncle who's an African-American. We call him the dog whisperer. He's got two dogs, and he loves to train dogs. And, in fact, we have two dogs, and he trained our two dogs, and they love him. He said, really? I said, really? Now, you see, this, this seems like something that, you know, uh, rationally a mature man obviously would be able to figure out, but he just grew up with that false idea. And we grew up with many false ideas about ourselves as well. But when you have prejudices you are not going to feel calm in life. Because, look, we live in an international world today. My, my daughter is a teacher. She has 22 children in her class, kindergarten. Eleven of those children are from other countries. And the interesting thing, she says that when you see them in the playground, they know no difference between black, white, yellow, um, you know, the way people dress. They're, the boys and the girls, the boys are just as empathic as the girls. And she said, by the time you see them in the third or fourth grade, you see the differences. You know, the black kids tend to hang around with the black kids. The Indian kids hang around with the Indian kids. The Chinese kids sort of gravitate toward the Chinese kids. You see some of the prejudices emerging, that they, they're not as open to each other. And why? Because they're being conditioned at home to not be as open to each other. But when they're five and six years old, they, know, they don't know that difference. And we have to get back to the point where we can see in all human beings the commonality that we have. And that reduces prejudice. When we have empathy, we see beyond the surface of what someone looks like. We see into their heart and soul. And when we listen empathically, we really uncover the true nature of another person. And ultimately, I can tell you, you will, we all will realize that we're more alike than not alike. Human beings are more alike than not alike, no matter where you come from. Well, and, and this does bring up a very important subject that you mentioned about your your children and uh, or your daughter's children in the kindergarten and let me ask you this question isn't it possible or even probable that we are so bombarded media wise culturally that sometimes even outside of the home space mm-hmm. we are being told that we should believe this negative about this person, whether it is a racial thing that we are going against or mm-hmm. even a person's financial status. Yeah. How, how do you overcome this bombardment of negative media, negative everything that we information that we get all the time. Well, that's a critical question, Marianne, because, you know, there was a study released by the American Psychological Association just last week about the stress rates in America during this presidential campaign and saying that Americans are much more stressed. Our stress rates have increased dramatically anyway, but they've even increased more in the last year due to the presidential campaign, you know. The presidential candidate's emphasis on aggression, insults, lying, lack of integrity. I mean, it's symbolic of the de-emphasis of the importance of character and empathy. And, and it's currently do- dominated our elected officials. And, you know, 75% of Americans say that they experience stress on a physical or emotional level every day. And when we learn how to slow down and use empathy... We change our neurochemistry, and we're more likely to produce it in other people. You know, our nervous systems talk to each other. And when we're able to slow down and use empathy, 
we see beyond the surface, and we don't take in everything we hear as fact. Look, think of the presidential debates, and we hear 75% of this and 28% of that, and then the morning shows tell us 18% of the... We, we, don't, we have no idea whether those figures are even accurate. Many of them are not accurate. Many of the studies we hear about are not accurate because do you ever ask yourself, how many people were in the study? How accurate is the study? Was the study funded by the pharmaceutical company who's producing the drug? You know, you and I know as <laughs> scientists that, that that's not what we call an empirical study, right? You're not, you're not supposed to be, yet I can't fund my own study. Um, it, it, it's, it, it, it's unreasonable to do that. You're supposed to be completely objective, you know, double-blind studies where the, the, sub, the, the, the researcher doesn't even know which medication they're using. But much of it isn't done that way, so we, we get a lot of bias. But when we slow down and we start to pursue things and we learn to use our mind a little more analytically, we start to figure out the truth, not only in studies and, and the media blurbs that we're getting exposed to every day, but we learn more about how to perceive other people. You know, in this society, as you know, I wrote in the book that we work too much, sleep too little, we love with half a heart, and then we wonder why we're unhappy and unhealthy. So if you're working too much, if you're sleeping too little, if, if you don't really have intimate relationships that you can sustain with other people, you're moving too fast, and then you take in information too quickly. When you take in information too quickly, it's not examined very much. You know, it's been proven, actually, that when, when, when high school students undergo empathy training, their college board scores are higher. Why? Because they learn to slow down and take in all the variables when they're comprehending. Empathy allows us to have a wide-lens camera. When we're stressed, we have a very narrow-lens camera. And as I mentioned before, stress interferes with empathy, so we can't see accurately. We can't see ourselves accurately either. Well, yeah, yeah, and and this is so important. Uh, you say to slow down and use your analytical mind to to create empathy, Doctor Arthur. What about slowing down and using your intuition and your heart as a part of empathy? Well, I think I think empathy is. You know, the central aspect of empathy is the heart because, you know, the heart, not in a physical sense, but it's, it's our heart, it's our soul, it's, our, it's our, deep, our way of having the deepest connections possible with other human beings. So when we, when we are engaging in an empathic interac- interaction with another, it's a soulful interaction. It's a heartfelt interaction. It's authentic. It's real. It's genuine. Because we're slowing down enough that we're seeing the true nature of another person. You know, and I, I have a chapter in the book called Empathic Listening. And, and I love the definition, uh, holy listening, because it's really listening another human being's soul into a position of disclosure and discovery. And, you know, people often tell me that they refer someone to me and they'll say, oh, you know, he won't talk or she won't talk. You know, I've been I've been doing this work for almost 40 years now, and I've never had an occasion where someone won't talk if they're listened to empathically. Maybe they don't talk so much initially, but every human being wants to be understood. And if you know how to listen from that heartfelt position, people will feel safer. When people feel safer, they produce the hormone oxytocin. Oxytocin increases trust. It reduces fear. 
and it creates a feeling of security. So the person is open to receive and give feedback. Great marriages have that quality because in great marriages, people give each other what they need to hear, not what they want to hear. You know, when people marry somebody and they just want them to be a clone of them, or in your friendships, you just want a person to agree with you all the time, nobody grows. And that's not really empathic interactions. It's one person sort of trying to please the other so no one is upset and everybody remains static. There's no growth in those kind of relationships. Well, uh, yeah, certainly when a person is heard as well as understood, it it certainly will increase the trust of that person with the other person. A little earlier, you mentioned about slowing down, and this brings up the question about performance. We are, at least in the United States, a society of high performance. Mm -hmm. Do we have an addiction to performance? Well, as you know, I wrote a book a few years ago called Performance Addiction. I coined the term because of seeing so many people who believe that perfecting appearance and achieving status will secure love and respect. And I came to realize that it's an irrational belief system, that it's learned early from early family experiences, and it's reinforced by our material appearance-driven society. You know, my first recognition of performance addiction came about largely as a result of my work with a group of individuals who embodied so many of the qualities that are highly regarded in professional and public life. Their resumes were very impressive, but I noticed that despite their capabilities, they seemed to have little regard for their personal achievements and their own physical appearance. They all seemed to be what I call scoreboard watchers. Every day, they take inventory of how well or how terribly they're performing, how attractive, how attractive or how dreadful they look in the mirror, and they rate themselves. And they rate themselves very critically because we've become a society where people have come to think that if you can perform on high levels and if you look perfect, that you're going to be loved and gain respect. And that, that's not really true. If that were true, I'd be out of business. I mean, most of the people that have performance addiction have not learned how to love. They've not learned how to connect. They've not learned how to be in relationships and sustain intimacy because what they think is intimacy is achieving more and looking better. And look, over time, all of our appearances change. Over time, if you're just being loved for how much money you have, it's a functional relationship. Once you lose the money, I was telling a story in one of my group sessions last night where I interviewed this couple um, from California because they moved here. The, The husband was a CEO in California, lost his job, came here, and had been working here for a year or so, and, and they're very wealthy. He makes a lot of money, and he lost the job here. The company was a startup. It didn't work, and she was very, you know, very direct with him, and, and I, I asked him at one point, I said, do you love her? And he said, yes, and I asked her, do you love him? And she said, not anymore, and I said, well, what, what do you mean? She goes, I loved him when he wore a three-piece suit, and I loved our lifestyle, but now I come home and he's in sweatpants looking for job on the computer. He doesn't look the same to me. And we have to sell our home. They own a $1.2 million home here. And we're going to have to downsize. And I don't want to live that life. So you, you see, this is what I call image love. And this is what many performance addicts fall into. They, they love people on, on, on the surface, but they really have not formed a deeper connection. She never loved him. 
she she loved what he could provide for her because they had a lot of money. She worked for him in that in that company, that corporation in California, and you know she was impressive. He was giving talks. She saw the way he dressed, and she knew how much he made. He's a nice-looking man. So she fell in love with an image, and he fell in love with an image of her, but it's not real. You know, and, and empathy is the heart of the relationship skills needed to help performance addicts move past image love to real love. You know, performance addicts, they have tremendous difficulty loving. They base their own lovability on their daily performance, and unfortunately, they expect the same of their partner. They're constantly c- comparing and contrasting themselves and their partner to others. They find it easy to fall in love. That binding and blinding effect of early sex and early phase of relationship creates an illusion, an image of love. And, and then they think that, that that is really what real love is. And, of course, like my clients who I did that consultation with, it falls apart, it falls apart pretty rapidly when the resume falls apart. Well, yeah, that... Uh see that all the time it, it, it's kind of like those Hollywood uh, relationships when yeah. it, it we see it all the time so now does your book the stress solution give some help for individuals how to get out of this performance addiction or and and learn how to love in truth yes um, the 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 the, the the end chapters in the book is one is on authenticity, one is on goodness, because you cannot pursue happiness directly and you cannot reduce stress just by you know sitting in a chair and thinking, trying to calm yourself. When you give to others, you reduce stress. You know, People who are givers are six times healthier than people who are takers. And we know there's something called a helper's high. You produce that chemical oxytocin when you help other people. So when you help other people, you reduce stress and happiness is a byproduct. It also teaches you how to maintain relationships. And being authentic, being authentic is critically important because when we substitute our inherent personality for one that's trying to please to gain acceptance and love, it's a failing proposition. You know, pretense is a burden that's depleting and also makes it difficult to maintain intimacy as closeness to others is based on being able to be open, genuine, and vulnerable. So authenticity attracts others in powerful ways and allows us to feel comfortable in our own skin. And authentic relating, very important, enlivens the spirit and gives us the energy and confidence to go into the world, tolerate stress, maintain resilience, so that we can come home with our self-respect and integrity intact. You know, we were talking in, one, in my group session this morning about being authentic, and people were saying, gee, now that they've been together for a longer period of time, more and more is coming out. And one of the women who people said, gee, one of the fellas said, you know, he always thought she was very intimidating because she seems so together and so controlled and so measured in the way she speaks, and she is quite bright. And then she started to tell more of her story that, you know, as an adolescent, um, her, her mother couldn't handle the family anymore. Her father had left. The mother was was drinking, and, and she became a foster child. And she was in three foster homes before she reached the age of 18. And no one could believe it in the room because she seemed so polished. She's well-educated. She speaks well. But she started to tell her story of what, why she became so controlled. And, and one of the fellows looked at her because she started to cry as she was remembering living in those foster homes. And he said, you know, it's funny. 
we all see you as so put together, but when you were, when you were tearing, I felt closer to you than I ever have. He said, because I can see your vulnerability. He said, you're, you're so controlled sometimes that I can't tell what you're feeling. I can't tell whether even things matter to you and when the discussions take place in the group. And you see, this is, a, this is a person who has learned to be very controlled because her world was so out of control. And right. now she's realizing in the safety of these empathic relationships that she doesn't have to be so stressed and so worried about being so vigilant about controlling her emotions. She could let go a little bit. And she, she is what I would classify as a performance addict. But what happened when she let go and she became vulnerable? She got what all that achievement and appearance-driven intensity was about. She got loved. People felt closer to her. She, she's grown up thinking that the only thing that's going to make people feel closer to her is achievement and appearance. But she found out in, in, in the presence, in those present moments, that it wasn't true at all. What brought the people closer to her in the group is when she teared, when she was vulnerable, when she had the courage to be vulnerable. Well, Dr. Arthur, uh, let's talk about that in a, a little bit more detail after the break. So, folks, don't go away. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Are you feeling stuck? Sometimes we just need a little help from a friend. Go beyond ordinary healing and experience the extraordinary healing journey possible with custom healing code coaching with Dr. Marianne Chase. Visit thehealingwhisper.com. Dr. Chase's coaching sessions can be conducted via Skype or by telephone. If you have half an hour to devote to getting yourself out of that rut, Dr. Mary Ann is ready to be that friend. Visit TheHealingWhisper.com and click Coaching. Every day, you hear so much about different aspects of the health and wellness field. One day, you hear one thing, and the next day, you hear something that contradicts what you heard the day before. How do you know what's right? Try tuning in to The Cutting Edge of Health and Wellness today with Dr. Neil Nathan. Our goal is to educate and explore this field with guest experts in order to help you take control of your health and well-being. Listen Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to The Healing Whisper, A Return to Peace. If you would like to comment or have a question about our show today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. If you'd rather send an email, our email address is thehealingwhisper at mindspring.com. Now back to the show. Welcome back to the show. This is Dr. Marianne Chase, and my guest today is Dr. Arthur P. Sierra McCauley, and he has recently written, um, among other books, this newest book is The Stress Solution, Using Empathy and Cognitive Behavioral Therapy to Reduce Anxiety and Develop Resilience. And just before the break, we were talking about authenticity, and Doctor, you you gave an example of one of the individuals in your group therapy sessions that when she teared up, when she became her real self, when she told her story, Mm -hmm. it really brought people into her 
because otherwise, as the very controlled and stoic individual that she was being, people were intimidated by her. So it's just authenticity is so important in reducing stress. Um, What ways can people find to become more authentic? Well, I, I think when you're engaged in relationships with other people that are trying to do the same thing, it helps a great deal. So it's important to have a few friends or a spouse or a family member, someone that you can talk to about and, and experimenting. And, and a lot of the book, because as I said earlier, is a workbook to give you hints about how to do this and to do it with someone that you feel confident that you can trust and try to have the courage to reveal more of yourself. Because, you know, if we, if we don't reveal who we are, if we keep those things that we've been embarrassed about all our lives to ourselves, we never really know if we're really being loved. Because there's always that idea in the back of our minds, oh, if they really knew, oh, if they really knew this, or they really knew that, or they really knew where I came from, or they really knew how I feel about myself. Well, if they really knew, as that woman who shared that she grew up in foster homes and she teared about it, people felt much closer vulnerability brings us closer to each other, but empathy is the way to get there. And when we have these empathic encounters with others, we can slow down and feel more connected. And, you know, most people, if not all people, are attracted to authenticity. It relaxes us because we don't have to be on guard. We can be human, have flaws, make mistakes, and still be accepted and liked. And that's when we know we're truly loved. Because we love with all the pluses and minuses, not just with the pretense. When you're loved because you're only showing 50% of yourself, you're not really going to believe it, so it doesn't change anything inside you. You know, living authentically creates an inner calm and allows us to actualize our potential because we're freeing up so much energy from the stress of pretending. Right, and and so is this really the basis, the lack of authenticity, the lack of empathy? Is this what's missing in our culture that uh, successful people and and maybe by definition unsuccessful people, you know, is this why we tend to lead unsatisfied lives? Yes, I I think so, Mariana. You know, at this point in our culture, empathy Empathy is down. Trust is down. People, Americans have fewer friends than they ever had, fewer close friends. Americans used to say they had five to six close friends 20 years ago. Today, they say one or two. So empathy is down. Trust is down. Prejudice is up, which is very important because prejudice means we're continuing our biases about others. And I also think um, that we're continuing our biases about ourselves. And narcissism is increased. So narcissism is, is increased as empathy has gone down. And as we focus more on materialism and appearance, we focus less on character and integrity. And I think that we have to get back to a time when character and integrity are critically important. And knowing how to relate successfully is critically important. You know, people in the business world thought that empathy had no place. But Harvard uh, Business School did a study of, I think, 300 corporations. What did they prove? They proved that EQ was three times more important than IQ in terms of success in the corporate world. 
Because if you don't know how to empathize, you don't know how to negotiate with people successfully. And today, you know, people are going, my clients go to China, they go to India, they negotiate with contracts throughout Europe. You have to understand other people's cultures, other people's religions. You have to have some interest in learning about aspects of life that are different than yours. And that's where empathy comes in. Stephen Covey, many years ago in the 80s, was asked, can you, give, can you give us one word that would determine success in the business world? And he said, yes. What was the one word? Empathy. Because he said, if you, have, if you have empathy, you know how to ascertain your customers' needs. And they will feel listened to and attended to by you. And that's how you build relationships in business. So empathy is an important, the most important capacity, not only in personal life, but also professional life. Right, and and so if a person is going into their workplace on a daily basis and not having any source of empathy, it is just dragging them down the stress lane even further. Yeah. So so we've identified that the problem is lack of empathy, lack of authenticity. What are some steps an individual can take? And, you know, it does start with one person, you mm-hmm. know, the whole drop in a bucket concept. But what can one individual do to help begin the cultural transformation that we really need? Yes. Well, I, I would say... Practice empathic listening, and in the, in the book I have the chapter on empathic listening, and I list specific ways to t- start to experiment with it. First way, ask open-ended question, questions. This puts preconceptions aside while expressing true interest in another person's perspective. Instead of asking your teenage daughter, honey, do you really think that date was cute? You might ask, how was your evening with your new date? You know, because you see, most questions are statements that we don't have the courage to make the statements. When the mother says, honey, do you really think the date was cute? What is she saying? I don't think he was cute. So when people ask questions, closed-ended questions, it shuts the doors on inquiry and curiosity, and you usually get resistance. So the first step is to ask open-ended questions. The second is to slow down. Empathy slows things down so that emotions can be tempered with thoughtful reflection. The third step would be avoid snap judgments. Empathy doesn't categorize based on past experiences, but sees human beings as always changing and evolving. And the fourth is learn from the past. You know, we need to understand our past so that our theories and old patterns don't interfere with understanding and perceiving. If you're unaware of your own own biases from the past, your ability to perceive accurately is going to be compromised and you're going to be more stressed. For instance, if you have a fear of anger because your father had a short temper, you may, be, you may be overreacting when you encounter someone who's passionate, but they're not angry. But because they raise their voice because they're excited about something, you automatically think they're angry and you're misperceiving and you're producing the stress response. So these are ways, and there's several other suggestions in the book, of being able to practice, but you have to practice with other people. And you know, every day we encounter people we can practice with. Practice slowing down, asking open-ended questions, avoiding snap judgments, learning from the past, and not, not putting old faces on new faces. That's a very important concept. 
Well, that's great. And you know what? We only have a couple of minutes before this show is over. How can people get your book and how can they uh, get a hold of you? Well, my website is balancersuccess.com. You can, you can read my blogs and articles there and order the book there as well. Or you can order the book on Amazon or Barnes & Noble online. Um, or you can go to the publisher, New World Library, and order it there. But okay, just booksellers have it. Basically, wherever books are sold. And I do have one final question for you. If you can quickly talk about the final thought that you put in the book of the power of deep connections. Well, that you know, that is the last chapter, Marianne, because it in, in the end, the power the power of deep connections is what reduces stress makes us happier, changes our own brain chemistry. And I, know, and I know in your work you talk about, you know, how to change our chemistry naturally. I call it the soul's pharmacy. There's a chapter in the book called the soul's pharmacy. When you learn how to change your own brain chemistry and you realize by slowing down and listening empathically, you'll be less stressed, you'll be happier, you'll be more creative, it, be, it becomes something that you want more and more because it feels so much better. And when you're free of prejudices, and biases toward others and yourself, you're freed up with all the energy you were born with to become what you were destined to be. Excellent, excellent, excellent. Well, folks, way too soon. It has come time towards the end of the show. And I'd just like to remind everybody that uh, you can connect with me on my Facebook page, The Healing Whisper, as well as Twitter, LinkedIn, YouTube, and my website, thehealingwhisper.com. And as always, very wise man in an ancient text called Proverbs said, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. Thank you, Dr. Arthur P. Sierra McCauley. And until next week, blessings. Thank you again for taking the advice of your heart and tuning in to The Healing Whisper, A Return to Peace. Please join your host, Dr. Marianne Chase, again next Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We hope to talk to you again next week. Music